You'll find uh, in the bulletin two uh, longer passages that I'm going to read. Our Confession of Faith tells us that we hear from God most directly uh, when the Word is read. So be prepared to hear most directly from the Lord now. Not with the guy blathering later, but as the Scriptures are read. Um, Let me give you a little context as to why both of these are here. Um, I'm doing a sermon, preaching a sermon this morning that's in the middle of a series that I'm doing at the church where I'm doing interim work on the East Coast. And um, so uh, you're kind of dropping into the middle. So let me give you the context of what we've been doing so you know what you're dropping into the middle of. So in the series I'm doing on the East Coast, I'm in a long series on the attributes of God. We are at the love of God And we are at, specifically within thinking about the love of God, we're thinking about barriers that we have to sensing God's love. So he is love, so he loves. We're going to read about that in just a second. But despite all of that, we're kind of like, ah, am I lovable? Sure, God generically is love, but does he love me? And if I struggle with that, why is that? That I struggle with actually, as I like to put it, rolling over on my back in my bed, and I first wake up in the morning and saying, I am loved by God. And that is crazy and wonderful and true. So what are the barriers for you in actually sensing God's love? That's where we're dropping in. And we're dropping in this morning with something that no one wants to talk about as a barrier to sensing God's love, which is shame. And so we'll jump into it. I'll talk about it, even if you don't want to. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Let's hear God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's the challenge. To know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may also have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now what's the enemy, one of the enemies to knowing and believing God's love for us? It's shame. Now where does shame come from? That's our next text, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Little emendation there to the text by Eve. Um, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, classic, (laughs) classic here. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. That's actually the way it is in Hebrew. It's this little tiny thing at the end of the line. It's kind of like, I ate. That's, that's, That's the feel of it. In Hebrew, it's fascinating. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. Night. We'll come back to verse 21 in a little bit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, um, we can laugh at our first parents because we see ourselves in them. And we know our tendency, feeling our shame, to deflect, to hide, to not want to talk. And in so doing, we lose out on the opportunity of receiving the encouragement of the people of God and to hear anew the gospel of grace that speaks to our shame. So help us to be willing to bring our shame out amongst each other that we might be ministered to. Help us to believe, to know and to believe the love that you have for us. Let your love expel our shame. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, uh, a sermon on shame, the conversation that nobody wants to have. Why? Um, I started in ministry almost 30 years ago, and at that time, uh, when I started in ministry, um, America was much more of what I would call in broad categories a guilt-innocence uh, culture. That's what the dynamic was culturally. People primarily thought about themselves in those categories. And over time, what has happened is that our culture has moved to much more of an honor-shame dynamic, like what you would find um, more uh, in Asia or the Middle East. We've moved to, to put it absolutely pointedly, to a cancel culture that realize is an honor-shame dynamic. Cancel culture is. So in order to reach our culture with the gospel, we need to learn how to present the gospel in a way that people who sense their shame can see that their shame can be relieved because of Christ, can be covered because of Christ. That Christ not only takes away our guilt, which most of us who've got gray on top were really rejoiced in when we first heard that, that Christ could take away our guilt. Most of the people that in my kids' age need to hear the gospel in a sense where Christ can take away uh, their shame and their fears. That's the first reason. Second reason, we all experience shame to varying degrees. Um, I grew up um, with a Jewish mother. We did guilt really, 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 really. I, we were good. Very good at guilt. Some of you maybe grew up Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so we grew up really good on guilt, but almost no shame, thankfully. Um, I had to learn about shame as an adult um, and continue to learn about it. But we all have an experience shame to varying degrees, depending on our family background, our influences, our personal makeup, what we've gone through. We'll talk about that more in a, in a few minutes. And so because all of us experience this, we I am interested that you begin to learn to apply, learn to apply the gospel to the shame that you feel. Why is this so important? Shame keeps you inward. It keeps you thinking about yourself. Love, recognize, is primarily outward. This that we're called to in 1 John, um, the love that we have been called to, called into, makes you outward to look out to people in the world empathetically, both to people in the body of Christ and people that you live, work, and play with who desperately need Jesus. But if you're racked with shame and you're mostly looking internally, then you don't have that outward impulse. And so we must, we have to deal with our shame. Why don't people look outward? Let me detail that just a little bit. The person who has heaps of shame, it feels nearly impossible to think about other people. It's too risky to put themselves out there with someone that maybe they don't know well or doesn't know Christ. Why? They have a very high fear of exclusion. Shame, we'll read a definition of it a little bit later, but shame is a social experience. And so if I fear that this person who I might want to talk to could it, um, instead of responding the ways that I hope for, that they might cancel me, they might reject me, they might exclude me. I can't move towards them. I can't afford to. I can't afford to engage deeply with others. And yet, that's what's most needed by people in your in at Grace and people where you live, work, and play. And so, this is why we we have to attack our shame with the better news of the gospel. 
we were trying to, what we're trying to do is to understand, embrace, own for me God's perfect love so that our shame might be expelled, disregarded, even discarded. Now, to have that happen in your own life, you'd have to see your own shame. And so to that end, let's start back at the beginning. In Genesis, for shame wasn't always. Where did shame come from? If you're a note taker, um, the first point here is understand shame's provenance. It's the day of big words. Understand shame's provenance. Where did shame come from? Flowing out of the fall that we see here in Genesis 3, you get guilt, fear, and shame. They won't be there in the new heavens and new earth, hallelujah, but they are with us right now. What's going on in terms of shame here in Genesis chapter 3? This recounting of Adam and Eve and the fall as they listen to the devil instead of God. Um, What you see here is actually, interestingly, if you look at it carefully, is that the serpent's tool is shame. The serpent's tool is shame. Did you? Hear, I tried to give it the right inflection to help you hear it, because I think that this is the way that it was actually said. Um, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. He shamed her. The serpent shamed Eve. And that yielded shame in her, I'm going to guess it's because Satan himself feels shame about betraying God. As he should. See, if we have shame, we shame. And that leads to more shame. And you end up in this terrible cycle. Here we're seeing the beginning of that. So Satan used shame to end up bringing Adam and Eve into a state of shame that was revealed in their covering and hiding. Once God shows back up in the garden, Adam and Eve experience two things, both objective shame before the Lord because they had lost their honor in rejecting the honorable God for Satan, but they also had subjective shame that they felt shameful, and that's revealed by their actions, by their covering and hiding. If this is an area of interest for you, there's a quite good book by a PCA pastor's wife named uh, Heather Davis Nelson. She has a book that's titled Just Unashamed. Very, very helpful. Here's what she says about shame. At its core, shame is fear of weakness, failure, or unworthiness being unveiled for all to see. Or fear that at least one other person will notice that which we want to hide. How do you know where you have shame in your life? Shame is always revealed in what you don't want to talk about. What we don't want to talk about might reveal the truth about us. That's why we don't want to talk about it. And we fear that in that, if it were talked about or known, we'll be relationally cut off. We'll be apart from the love that we crave. And so what do we do? We hide like Adam and Eve. We, we attempt to cover ourselves rather haphazardly, and we hope desperately that certain things will never come up in conversation. Maybe lots of things. So shame started in the garden, but now it infects us in large and small ways every day. Though you may not realize that yet, and so that's the reason why then, secondly, I want you to begin 
to feel the ubiquity of your shame. This is the big word for this point, the ubiquity of your shame. It's everywhereness. Now, let me give you a disclaimer first. The point of helping you realize the shame in your heart is to give you vastly greater urgency to preach a thick, rich, new identity in Christ gospel to yourself daily. Um, this is, you hear me talk about this every time I'm here, about the importance of identity in Christ. It's so important because when you begin to see how much shame you actually have, you're going to want a remedy. And the remedy is something far more wonderful than your shame. And you need to hear it far more frequently. Frequency is important. What the scientists who study this stuff tell us is that neurobiologically, what you pay attention to really matters. If what you primarily pay attention to is your shame, your brain will more and more easily return to that path and to tread that path. Conversely, if you seek Holy Spirit's help in desperation, that you would frequently meditate on your shame-free, honor-restored new identity in Christ, your brain will also more easily tread that path. The way one uh, professor, one psychiatrist who teaches stuff on this, uh, an East Coast Christian guy who I really enjoy, named Kurt Thompson, he encourages us, you need to pay attention to what you pay attention to. Well, with that longish caveat, let's think about where shame is found. We tend to think about, I mean, a couple of categories here. We tend to think about big shame. And big shame comes from large sin that is done to me. Uh, where I've seen this in my ministry over time uh, is where there has been some kind of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And if large shame has been done to you, please find a good, thoughtful, gospel-shaped counselor to help you work through it. It's very difficult to work through by yourself or even just with your friends. If that's where your shame comes from, please get, get help. But also we can have big shame about large sin that is done by me. Um, the biggest sins that I have done. Um, sometimes I'll have uh, somebody come up to me because I preach you know, across the country. and come, Preacher, you have no idea what I've done. You're right. I have no idea what you've done. But let's open the Bible. Because in the Bible, we find this guy named David. And David, if you'll recall, um, it's in the spring when kings go out to war and David stays home. And he stays home and he lusts after a woman enough that he calls her over to his house and he lays with her and commits adultery and now he's got to cover it up because there's a kid. And so he manages to get her husband killed. And he's the model of repentance in the scriptures for us. So yes, you may have done large sin and I don't want to minimize that at all. But I also want to say that God's grace is greater than your sins. For me, um, I have made several very costly mistakes over the course of my career. And um, um, regret's tough. I, I returned this morning in, in meditating and praying and thinking over this to the costliest mistake that I made. And it, it's very, very difficult to get out of my mind and heart. It is 
It's seemingly ever-present. So big shame. So those are sort of the easy ones, right? The ones that your mind already went to. There's also lesser but persistent shame. The recurring sin that I'm fighting but I'm feeling unsuccessful at it. Feelings I wish I didn't have. Thoughts, even ungodly meditations I have but would want no one to know about. Regret over judgmental thoughts flowing from a judgmental heart. Lesser but persistent things. And then there's daily shame. There's appearance shame. I just got my hair cut yesterday. My wife and I affectionately call today Spiky the Dragon Day. Because curly hair just does not do well being cut. It's like, wah! What did you do to me? And so my hair never looks right the first day. Yes, guys also have bad hair days and know it. We have this daily, what I would call, appearance shame. Please, 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 please comment on this. But don't say anything about that of which I am so ashamed. We have performance shame. This is a term from Heather Davis Nelson. Um, I haven't, am not, and likely won't measure up. Vocationally, relationally, in the progress that I should have made. And for most of us, this means that we beat ourselves up internally. Shame is everywhere if you're paying attention. Socially, shame shows up as insecurity about whether people really like me or if I'm on the edge of being ejected from a group that I want to be included into. And that can cause, in the worst cases, causes to become rabid people pleasers or acting like a chameleon, trying to become what I think those around me want me to be. Shame is everywhere, and it attaches to us. I have an Australian shepherd um, in, in Idaho, and she likes to run through the woods. We live in the woods. She wants to run through the woods, and we have this delightful plant in Idaho that we didn't have in Seattle that leaves burrs. You know, like you get in your pants, you know, when you walk through. The, well, this is an Australian shepherd. Have you ever seen an Australian shepherd? The, it, it's, it's a walking fur ball. And so you touch her, and you're like, oh, there's another bird. And you're like, <laughs> and you pat her, oh. right? That's what shame feels like. It attaches to us. It attaches to nearly everything in everyone's lives. We all have shame, unrecognized or not. Now, my point is not that you add shame to shame. You don't want to end up out of the backside of the sermon going, wow, I have a lot more shame than I thought I did. That's awful. What a bummer. I feel so shameful for having so much shame. No, a thousand times no. The point of coming to better recognize the shame that you have is that having seen it, you can pick it out. You can discard it. You can disregard it. You can expel it. You can replace it with something that is true and beautiful. But you can't do that if you don't recognize it, because then you won't do anything about it. But it will still be affecting you. 
So recognizing it is important so that in its place you can have a genuine recognition of God's perfect love for you instead. Now some people, I realize, don't have a recognition problem. Theirs is the opposite. They see, they sense, they feel all the shame that they have, and they're like, how do I get it unattached from me? And is that important? It is. It's important, and it's not just a matter of my internal feeling okay. Here's why it's important. When I feel shame, I tend to give shame. And I distance myself from others. And the danger of that, as it relates to shame, is that being together with people is the very place where shame is healed. Remember that passage? It talks about confessing your sins to one another. And we're all kind of reading it, and we're like, uh, could we like just trim that little part of the Bible out? Could, could that not be there, please? But that's the very place that shame is healed is when it's spoken. Shame can't live. Shame can only live when it's in the dark. It can't live in the light. But shame's strategy that's wielded by Satan is to isolate. Isolate us from God. God didn't, did God say that? Isolate us from God and convince us to be isolated from each other. And I'll tell you, nothing separates you from other people more than shaming them when they don't perform well. That's what Heather Nelson calls it. She says, shame is what we heap on others when they fail us. But recognize that when we do that, we're reflexively giving away what we have. And if we have shame, we, without even meaning to, give it away. That's why it's important. There's a great, vast importance to us to recognize just not, where shame, not only where shame came from and that it's ubiquitous, but that we recognize it and recognize it specifically where it's attached to our lives. If I were here next week, we'd be thinking through Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 quite a lot. You see, if I don't recognize that I have got shame, then when I read about Jesus scorning the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, it doesn't make much sense to me. I'm kind of like, um, okay, great, glad you did that. But if I sense my shame and I see that at the cross, Jesus is taking on himself willingly my shame so that I can be clothed with the family robe of righteousness. That makes a big difference. A big difference. You see, Jesus came as much to take away my shame as to take away my guilt. And if I can call out something as shame, I can then apply God's gospel of love to it. Think of, think of Jesus. The gospel speaks of a Savior who has shamed his entire life right up to his shameful end. Can you imagine hanging naked, being ridiculed and mocked as he died? That's, that's what this says. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. But that's what this says. That's what the table says. These are the tokens of a radically shamed Savior who lived and died in your place, taking your shame on himself. 
Jesus ends his life naked in shame so that you trust in him in repentance and faith. Clothed in his righteousness instead of in shame. Clothed with dignity, with the proper honor befitting a child of the king wrapped in the family robe. That's why Jesus sends his life naked in shame. So that that's what we could receive. Here's what Heather Nelson says about this. She calls it a shame exchange. She says, this shame exchange is costly. Jesus willingly clothed himself with your dishonor, giving his shame-free identity to you, if you will be united to him by faith. All it costs us is the humility of admitting we cannot cover our own shame. This shame exchange is the heart of your father. And it shows up in Genesis 3.21 where I said we'd return. So let's go there briefly as we begin last and briefly to let God's love expel your shame. What I like about 1 John and why we've been um, meandering our way through chapter 4 is that he deals with guilt uh, and fear and shame. Um, And so God's love helps expel our fears because our fear of judgment is gone. What we see in that 1 John passage is this, what I like to call contra-conditional. It's a love that we receive that's not because we have met the conditions. Actually, we, we have anti-met the conditions. We've broken the conditions. And yet God still loves us because Jesus has met the conditions for us. This forgiving love of God that we hear in 1 John 4 talked about in terms of propitiation, here in Genesis 3.21, we learn that it's also covering for our shame. So Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What do we learn about our Father's heart here? Well, it's not, if you remember Matthew 25, there's the parable of the three servants and the, the first guy gets a whole bunch of money to invest and the second guy gets a little bit less money to invest and the third guy just gets a little bit of money to invest. And, um, and the third guy, when the master comes back around, he's kind of like, hey, so what'd you do with my money? And the third guy's like, well, you know, I know what you're like and I was scared of you and so I just kind of buried it here, you can have it back. And that servant, you'll recall, is the one who is judged as getting the master wrong. So I think many times we think about our father as one who it fits, does not fit the description. Right? We think about the father like that third servant did. But this tells you what your father's heart is like. He made for them for Adam and his wife, garments of skin, and clothe them. Here are the first sacrifices for sin. Heather Nelson, God gives clothing because his eyes are opened with compassion to the shame that now exists in them in Adam and Eve because of sin. I'd like you to think about something for a second. What if every time you felt shame, you rehearsed in your mind your father plucking off that burr of shame from your soul and instead clothing you, lovingly clothing you with the family robe, saying over you, 
You are my beloved adopted son. You're my beloved adopted daughter. With you I am well pleased. Do you think that would make a difference? That is, friends, what God is saying to you as you come anew to embrace the gospel. The Father is saying, my love has covered your shame. Now, Kurt Thompson advises that we should pay attention to what we pay attention to. Wouldn't that be one of the most crucial things you could pay attention to? In your mind and heart. If by the power of the Spirit you did that, you'd be on the road to letting God's love expel your shame. And so let's pray that that would be the case for you and for me. Father, thank you that we see in your coming to Adam and Eve in the bushes as they hide as they're fearful, as they sense their guilt and shame. Thank you that you, you come to them. You don't sit back with your arms crossed, tapping your foot, waiting for them to come back to you, but you come to them. And you come to us. You come to us here at the table inviting us to receive anew the robe of righteousness, to be clothed anew with the dignity that befits the adopted children of God. Jesus, it's stunning that you knew what you were getting into coming to earth and you still did it. That you knew how this was going to go. And you volunteered for it. It's crazy. And Holy Spirit, as much as we could be moved in these moments, I pray, uh, by hearing the gospel that relieves our shame, we can very quickly forget this and go back to our shame patterns and leave them uninterrupted and suffer as a result. Would you disrupt our patterns? Would you help us to pay attention to what we're paying attention to? And that we'd pay attention to this wonderful gospel of grace. That we would indeed let God's love expel our shame. Do that even now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.